0: Recently, uh, a friend and I uh, were talking about how different uh, America is, the United States, from the country we were born into. Conversation that I guess perhaps at my age you've had numerous times with various friends. Um, How utterly unimaginable things a generation ago are now not only accepted, but they're celebrated. They're even viewed as constitutionally grounded civil rights. And, you know, America is still a wonderful place, but it is a country in decline. And in many ways, extraordinary decline. And it's a decline that shows no signs of slowing down. And my friend and I agree that this is, psychologically at least, psychologically at least, a more severe problem for us Calvinists. After all, we believe that God is writing the story. And neither one of us really much like the way the story's going. At least in the West. I'd like to walk out of the movie myself, actually. If you... We don't like the narrative. Now, this feeling is not unique or new, this tension is present in the Bible. In the the wisdom literature, the Psalms and the Proverbs, for example, there are plenty of texts which state clearly that the world is run by a just and a good God who blesses the righteous and who thwarts the way of the wicked. So the Bible's emphatic. It's emphatic. We live in a moral universe. Governed by the righteous God, and yet this principle of just retribution, blessing to the righteous, cursing for the wicked, is often broken. It's violated. It's even turned on its head in the world. Right? It's just that which provokes the crisis. Not just for my friend and I, but for the biblical writers themselves. This is part of the reason the book of Ecclesiastes is in the canon of the Bible. The author of Ecclesiastes looks around and he's scandalized by what he sees. And he writes, for example, this. He says, In this meaningless life of mine I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Right? We all know cases of just. Men and women being taken prematurely and the, and the inveterate enemies of the church living to be 97? The writer of Ecclesiastes continues and he says there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men get what the wicked deserve and the wicked men get what the righteous deserve. So it's the basic doctrine of God and the state of the world which provoked the crisis and have for generations. And it is to this crisis that Psalm 37 is addressed. And so we'll look at this text under four headings. Four headings. Fret not is the first one. Second, the end of the wicked third is the end of the righteous and fourth is be constructive so it's fret not the end of the wicked the end of the righteous be constructive the first point is fret not which is really the basic point of this whole psalm verses 1 and verse 8 both say do not fret Now, fret here includes the idea of worry. That's its basic idea. Fretting is worrying. But it also includes anxiety and anger. The psalmist is saying something like, don't fly into a passion. Don't get yourself agitated. Don't get all tied up in knots because of the state of the world or the success of the wicked or the slowness of your vision of things. Fretting is for many of us something we tolerate because we think it shows our concern. We fret about our futures, about our finances, about our retirements, about our kids, about our health. Responsible people fret. That's part of the job description of being an adult. Or so we think, right? Only carefree adolescents and hippies talk about not fretting. Or worrying. I mean, what are we supposed to do anyway? Consider the lilies? How they neither toil nor spin. Yet not even Solomon in his glorious clothes as they are. That's crazy talk. And what are we supposed to be like? The birds of the air that neither sow nor reap nor store up food in barns and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Who talks like that? I suspect no one in here had a father when they were a teenager who sat him down and said anything close to that to them. No, we all got the talk. I grew up in the Depression. I walked this far to the school bus. You have to work, son. You have to be disciplined. You have to get good grades. You have to go to school. You have to work, 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 work. No father sits a son down and says, look, son, consider the lilies. (laughs) Look, they're, they're not stressed out. No, this is America. We tell people to fret. That's why we're overachievers. You don't build the Hoover Dam without fretting a little bit. We like to worry. Right? We think it shows how committed we are. It doesn't. Fretting or worrying is a sickness of the soul. It's the opposite of hope. A faithful trust in the God of the future that's really what fretting does it takes your capacity to hope we have this natural capacity as human beings unlike any other animal to open ourselves up to the future and to envision the future and to desire the future and fretting takes that capacity and turns it into a kind of dread and really it's almost inevitable isn't it I mean by nature, we long for this future. We have eternity in our hearts. And part of that longing is we want security. We want peace. We want stability. That's even the biblical picture of the future. And then we look around now and everything's frail and fleeting and fragile. Seems like fretting's completely inevitable. How could you not fret? And fretting, we should note in our day, is a very conservative temptation. Like the conversation I spoke of with my friend, fretting often springs from a kind of nostalgia about how things were better in the 1950s. Things shouldn't be this way. Things didn't used to be this way. Things were so much better back in the day. Do you know what the writer of Ecclesiastes says? In chapter 7, verse 10 in Ecclesiastes, he says, When you complain that things were better in the past, when you say things were better in the old days, it is not from wisdom that you speak. And the reason that this lacks wisdom is not that all times are equal. That's not the point. It's that these times... These times, every bit as the past, are God's providentially ordered times. So to say, well, things were so much better back then, is essentially to insult the providential God. These are the times the Lord has ordained and directed. These are the authorities he's raised up. This is the situation he's called us to live in, to speak in, and to bear witness in. And faithful worry and anger and agitation are faithless responses to providence. So the text says, Fret not. And notice it's a command fret not. You know, I think we have a difficulty with this because we really don't believe that God can or should command our emotions. Right? It's one thing for God to tell us to do this and not do that. He's commanding your will when he does that. But God doesn't just command your will. He says, yeah, emotions are kind of wild. It's like a roiling sea. Who can control their emotions? People people are the way they are emotionally. So I'm not going to touch your emotions. But the Bible commands your emotions all the time. It says rejoice. It says weep with those who weep. You say, well, I'm not much of a weeping guy. Well, I'm sorry. Paul says weep with those who weep. I don't care if you're a stoic. You're commanded to weep. So go manufacture some tears. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. It says, blessed are those who mourn. Your emotions are commanded all the time. You may say, well, look, I'm Irish and Italian, like Kevin is, so how could I possibly not fret? Your emotional life is under the authority of God's Word, and a text like this is seeking emotional transformation. You don't have to remain emotionally the same person you were last year. So what? You have a certain emotional inheritance and tendency. So what? Fret not. Period. Full stop. No qualifications. No yeah, but. The text says it's evil and it leads to further evils. People who fret don't just fret. They say and do things they shouldn't do. Fret not. So, the second point, and these are all really reasons not to fret, the rest of the sermon, right? The rest of the psalm. The second point then is the end of the wicked, by which I mean look ahead to the end of the wicked. Look ahead to the end of the wicked. A big part of why we fret is because we don't see. Or either that or we don't really believe the big picture story of the Bible. This this is seen in many ways. It's it's amazing how we are as human beings. The, the, The littlest, pettiest thing can send us into a tailspin. And when we're in the tailspin, we think the whole universe is careening out of control. Right, we think that the divine author has lost control of the narrative. He's lost control of the story. And so we fret because we're sort of trapped in our narrow little perspectives. And when something goes wrong in that narrow little perspective, oh my, do we unravel. We refuse to look ahead beyond the horizon of our own lives and times. Very few people think beyond their own death. But the Christian life is lived in the power and the light of the age to come. The end is already broken into time in Jesus, and that means the end of all things is secure. The end has come, it will come again, God will set the world to rights the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So fret not. It might be your natural inclination to fret, but it's incompatible with true faith. Because true faith looks at the glorious future. It looks ahead to the end and it says, oh, the story is not and cannot unravel. I might not understand my part in the big picture, but the big picture is secure. And so this admonition to look ahead includes the idea of looking ahead to the end of the wicked, who seem to prosper and do so well now often. There's a big pile of texts in the psalm about this. In verse 2, they fade and wither. In verse 9, they're going to be destroyed. In verse 10, they will be no more. Look at verses 12 and 13. Psalm 37 say, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows that their day is coming. The Lord, he sees the end with perfect clarity, and he doesn't fret. What does he do? He laughs. And so should we. And you know why? Because evil is stupid. And because evil is stupid, it's doomed. And because the end is secure, there should be less fretting, more laughter. Verses 14 and 15, the the wicked draw their sword and they bend their bow to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay the the upright, and their bow and sword pierce themselves. There's a, it's a rich irony. The wicked sought to destroy the church, the psalmist said, but it backfires on them because the church is indestructible. I was reminded recently of T.F. Torrance, a, a Scottish theologian that I studied. His father was a missionary to China, and after planting and nourishing the church there in the 1940s and 50s, he and all the other missionaries were driven out of China by Mao's Cultural Revolution. In the 1960s, disheartened, the senior Torrance returns to Scotland and receives word that the church is completely decimated. All the Christians in the province he worked with, either killed or arrested, all the buildings burned to the ground. His son, T.F. Torrance, goes back to the province in 1994 some 40 or 50 years later. He finds the church there, thriving, literally resurrected from the ashes. History is full of these kinds of ironic reversals. China, as you may know, had one million Christians in it in 1900. One million Christians in China in 1900. Today, after a century of repression, and hostility and persecution. There are 100 million Christians in the officially atheistic state of China. Right, this psalm is an encouragement to remember that stupidity and evil—they can inflict a lot of damage. They can do it for decades. They can work, but they don't work forever. The wicked cannot change the basic structure of the world. They cannot make water run uphill. This is a moral universe. And the prosperity of the wicked, verse 20 says, is a withering flower. They're going to inherit the wind. The psalmist adds his own personal testimony in verses 35 and 36 about having seen a wicked and ruthless man like a luxuriant tree, but he passed away and then he was no more. I looked for him. I couldn't find him. As it is with all men, so it is with the wicked men. They only come in two flavors. Dead ones and dying ones. That's the only kind of people there are in the world. Dead ones Dying ones. And Augustine told us that it's wise for us to remember that in our civic affairs, the dead are being replaced by the dying. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Look ahead to the end of the wicked and fret Not. The third point is we're to look ahead to the end of the righteous. This is the positive refrain throughout the psalm. In verse 9, you can see this repeatedly. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 18, a whole bunch of other verses in the 20s and 30s of the psalm always talk about the righteous, those who wait for the Lord, those who hope on the Lord, inheriting the land. These texts here refer, of course, to the land of Israel. But in the New Testament, Jesus expands the promise and says the meek will inherit the earth. So these promises in this text, in this psalm, they are for us. They require that we look ahead to the end of the righteous. To our inheritance. To the new heavens. To the new earth. It's not going to be an inheritance gained without many tribulations. Verses 23 and 24 say, Our steps are ordained by the Lord, and though we stumble, we shall not fall, for the Lord holds our hands. Fretting entails having your eyes in too constricted a place. If you look ahead to the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, if this is just not mythological fantasy to you, then these things will encourage our faith. They're piled up in this psalm, really, when you think about it. The psalmist piles this up to deal with our fretful obsession, with either our enemies or the state of the world or situations that, in our lives that are unnerving us. And the psalm says, look ahead to the glorious future of those who hope, of those who wait, of those who trust, of those who look to the Lord. They are going to inherit the land. And so your fretting needs to start being displaced by joyful confidence. If the worst imaginable set of earthly things were to happen to you, your spouse, and your children, today, for the next 50 years, you are still going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection. The church is still not going to be destroyed. The worst imaginable things have happened, are happening, right now, today, in Sudan and two dozen other countries. But they're not going to touch The resurrection, glory, and the future of those saints. Or the church in the world. The worst imaginable things that can happen cannot harm those who are dead in Christ, who've been baptized with Christ, who've been raised with Christ. If you're going into a battle already dead, you don't have to fear dying. Don't fret. Look ahead to the future. It's bright, glorious, resplendent. So, the fourth point be constructive. This concerns what are we to replace fretting with in the meantime? Right? If we listen to this text, some of us are going to have a lot of time on our hands. Well, I have to replace all my fretting time. How then shall we live? And I want to uh, focus on the commands that are given in verses 3 through 8. In verses 3 through 8, trust in the Lord and do good. It's very simple, really. Trusting people don't fret. They laugh because they look ahead. And they do good. Dwell in the land, the text says, and enjoy safe pasture. The idea is cultivate faithfulness. So the advice here is you know, go out into the world. Don't retreat. Go out and live, live in the world. Live in the land. Participate in society. Find ways to do good. Be faithful in your own personal and family lives. Do your work well for the glory of God. The basic stuff. Put your hand to the work God has given you to do and do it with hearty chair. I mean, don't worry about the outcome. Don't worry about how the story's going. The story's going to end up fine. You might remember when Israel was sent into Babylonian exile. Now think of this. Their whole civilization is destroyed. The nation's invaded. People are killed. People are exiled. Jerusalem is burned. The temple's razed. They're carried away by a pagan king into exile. And Jeremiah says, here's what I want you to do. Build houses. Plant. Reap. Marry. Be giving in marriage. Seek the welfare of the city where the Lord has placed you. So you're in cultural exile, perhaps. Maybe you feel culturally like you've been carried away to Babylon. So here's what you do. In seeking the welfare of the city where the Lord has placed you, you will find your own well-being, Jeremiah said. And we're called to that. So the remedy, no matter what our state of affairs is simple: Cultivate godly discipline, be faithful, shun evil, do good. The, the psalmist is really, I'm not fond of corny sayings generally. I find them corny. Um, but the psalmist is saying something equivalent to, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. I mean, what does it do to complain about the darkness? The darkness doesn't care that you're fretting. You have to keep your candle burning. And personally, this comes down to another very simple children's song. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. It's not read your Bible and pray every seventh or eighth day when you get around to it. And you'll sustain, sustain, sustain. It's read your Bible and pray every day and then you'll actually grow and flourish and be luxuriant and fruitful. Look, it's hard to surpass that. It doesn't matter how many degrees are hanging on your wall. That's really good advice, wholesome advice for fretters. Read the Bible and pray. It keeps the fretting away. Fretting people are not meditating on Holy Scripture and praying. They're pacing around the room. Verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's the firm conviction of all of Scripture that God Himself, the triune God, is delightful. The world may be and often is broken and sad, and so it, it, it can't be the source of lasting delight. But glorifying God leads to enjoying Him forever. And so when we love God, our desires are realigned to His desires. That's why the psalmist can say, He'll give you the desires of your heart. You might remember Augustine famously said, I know Pastor Vance used to cite this all the time, Augustine famously said, Love God and do what you will. Because he knew that if you loved God, you would... Your desires would be to do what's right. So verses 5 and 6 say, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will act to reward or to vindicate. So this is a thing we all have to do because we all tend to naturally fret. You have to take your plans, your career, your aspirations, and put them up on the altar of God's good providence. Even if that providence is incomprehensible and inscrutable, and submit them all there. And you don't have to do that once. You have to do that over and over and over again. Verse six says, "He'll make the, the your reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun." So the end is radiant. It's like the dawn. So cast your anxieties on the Lord; He cares for you. Fret not. Look at verse 7. It says to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fretful people are busy, 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 busy. They can't sit still. They cannot be quiet. They're chatterers. There's a stillness envisioned here. It's not inactivity. It's active, but it's calm, measured activity. It's not rash. It's not panicked. That type of person is grounded in the discipline of waiting on God's voice and leading. Silence has an extraordinary, purifying, centering effect on the soul. Silent people fret less. And I haven't even consulted any studies on that. Fretters talk. Silence is especially needed in our noisy age. We're addicted to all these gadgets and all this sound. And monks have known this for centuries. Many of them go for days without speaking as a discipline to cultivate an interior, calm, receptive attitude. Look, there's nothing Eastern about that. That's biblical. It's what the psalmist means when he says, Be still and wait. So silence still waiting before the Lord in prayer and meditation on Scripture, that's the vital nerve center of the Christian life. That's the place worries go to die. Turn off the gadgets, open up the Bible. Serenity, it's a grand thing in a child of God. And finally, verse 8 gets to the heart of what often accompanies fretting. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Fretting people often get mad for various reasons. Either at God or the state of the world, right? But it's not a righteous anger. It's fruitless. It accomplishes nothing, the text says. So look ahead to the end of the wicked. Look ahead to the end of the righteous. And in the meantime, be faithful and be constructive. Fret not. Neither God nor His Word nor His purposes are threatened. And the one who does the will of God, John says, abides forever. Amen.